All right, good morning. It's good to be with you. Go ahead and open with me to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45, we are covering the whole chapter, all of those wonderful verses. And you have an outline there in front of you. The title of our message today is The Road to Reconciliation. The Road to Reconciliation. I think it's a little bit loud because I will get much louder (laughs) as we get going. Mike had been working at his company job going on 25 years. He was a faithful man, a faithful laborer, one who sought to work heartily as to the Lord and not to man. Day after day, he performed his tasks with integrity. He showed respect to his co-workers, and he labored for the good of his company. And everything seemed to be going well for Mike. Everything seemed to be going well for his family. Until one particularly hard year hit. Mike began battling frequent health issues, and it started to impact his productivity. A couple of his team members that Mike supervised were caught in embezzling funds. And the cultural tide seemed to be shifting as well. Buyers were no longer as eager to purchase the company's product as they once did. And therefore, after 25 years of faithful service, of faithful labor the board of directors determined to go in a new direction. Mike was out, and the young, hip, innovative man was brought in to replace him. And as you can imagine, this was a devastating blow to Mike and his family. Fear and anxiety began to rise in his heart as he began to wonder, how am I going to provide for my family? But there was something else creeping into Mike's heart, and that was anger and bitterness. How dare the board fire him? He had been working there for so long and so faithfully. I mean, it wasn't his fault that things just bottomed out last year. His resentment also carried over to the young man who took his place. Despite not knowing anything about this guy, Mac... Mike found himself harboring personal animosity against them, hoping that he would fail, hoping that the company would just go up and smoke. But most of all, Mike's anger burned against God. How could this happen to him? Where was God in all of this? Surely God could have stopped this travesty. Maybe God did not care Maybe God was not in control. And so with these thoughts dominating his mind, Mike's heart increasingly grew cold, brooding, and resentful. Never would he be able to forgive anyone for what had happened to him. That was his heart. Well, brothers and sisters, sadly, this figurative, this fictional illustration is the story of many in our world today, right? Many people live just like Mike lived, with unforgiving hearts and fractured relationships. Where can Mike turn to find hope? What truth will set his heart free from the shackles of bitterness? And let me get personal with you right here, steadfast, right? Where can you turn to find strength needed for forgiveness and reconciliation. Or maybe you find yourself, in the past, you found yourself in a similar situation as Mike. Maybe even you even, you even come here today with fractured relationships in your own life. Maybe somebody has sinned against you, a family member. Maybe you've been hurt by a close friend. Maybe you've been attacked by a coworker or a neighbor or someone else. And the hurt, the hurt has been so deep that you're not sure how you will ever find forgiveness 
for that person, let alone be reconciled to them? Where can you turn to help you find the wisdom to lead you upon the road to reconciliation? Well, it's here, right? It's in God's sufficient word. The scripture has much to teach us about forgiveness and reconciliation. It does so didactically through specific commands and authoritative biblical teachings, such as Jesus's in Luke 17.10. He says, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times today saying, I repent, forgive him. Or Ephesians chapter 4, 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. But scripture also teaches us practically, practically, as we observe the lives of men and women who exemplify the commands of scripture. This is most powerfully seen, as we know, in the Uh, illustration of our Lord Jesus Christ, who died upon the cross to save sinners, to forgive sinners. But it's also seen here in another man in Genesis chapter 45, whose remarkable demonstration of forgiveness and reconciliation gives us a model, a pattern, a blueprint to follow. And that man is the man we've been studying the last few months, Joseph. Right? As you recall, if you're new here, Joseph, for the last few chapters, from chapters 42 through 44, Joseph has been putting his brothers through a series of tests. He, he wants to know whether or not his brothers have changed. Are they still the same ruthless, heartless men that they once were? And so we've seen that Joseph has masterfully reconstructed a, a scenario which places his brothers in an almost identical situation as what happened back in Genesis chapter 37. The brothers are faced with an option here. Either sell their youngest son Benjamin into slavery and save their own skin, just like they did Joseph back in the day, or attempt to save their brother's life, unlike they had done previously. Joseph puts them in this dilemma. What are they going to do? Which way are they going to turn? Well, we saw last time in chapter 44 that Judah's speech shows that there was a remarkable transformation that has happened in their lives. We saw last time that Judah confessed their previous wrongdoing. He repented from their their sin. Their hearts have been changed. They love their father. They now love this new favored son, they will not sell him into slavery. In fact, Judah says, I will lay down my life in his place. Send me into slavery and let him go free. And so that's the catalyst for chapter 45 as we get going. And it's this powerful speech then that, that leads to one of the most heartwarming and most touching scenes in not just Genesis, but, but really in all of the scripture. This is the climax of the Joseph narrative. It it is the place that we have been building to all along. And it's this scene which magnificently teaches us how to go about achieving reconciliation and forgiveness in our own lives. Now, it's true. This doesn't give us everything we need to know about forgiveness. It doesn't teach us everything we need to know about reconciliation. But it gives us a good starting place. Right? It provides us one of the most essential directions, and it's this, that we must recognize and we must submit to the sovereignty of God. In fact, the theme of our message today that we see here in these verses is this, to successfully travel the road to reconciliation, you must rightly understand and embrace the sovereignty of God. That's key, both recognizing, understanding, and submitting to, and embracing God's sovereign rule, his sovereign control in your life. What does this road of reconciliation look like in Joseph's life? Well, we we see in chapter 45, it progresses in three stages. 
It progresses in three stages. The first stage is a startling revelation in verses 1 through 13. A startling revelation. Joseph begins by revealing his true identity, which, yes, Rod, you stole my thunder there, but hey, everybody knew what was coming. He reveals his true identity. Look at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. What a moving scene. Well, what was the trigger of it all? Well, we see in verse 1, it's the word then points us back to Judah's self-sacrifice and his confession, his speech in chapter 44. This links chapter 44 with chapter 45. As jo- uh, Judah came near to Joseph's throne, he cried out to be substituted for his brother's life. His repentance and transformation left Joseph undone. As Winham comments, Joseph's last defenses are broken. He can no longer control himself. He orders his people, get, oh, look, just get out of the room. Let me be alone with these men. And there in the private chamber of these 12 men came weeping unlike anything that had ever been heard before along the banks of the Nile. As Joseph weeps, 22 years of pent-up sorrow and anguish. Let me just think of all the emotional and the spiritual hurt, the aches, the pains. It's all over. Joseph is forgiven. If you've ever been in such a situation, you can relate. When you've been reunited with a person that you've cared deeply about, but y'all have been separated for so long, there's weeping, there is joy, there are tears that flow when y'all come together. I think even of my wife and I, when we sin, and I sin against her, and we come together in forgiveness and reconciliation, there's tears that flow sometimes. I think even more so with these 22 years of sin, brokenness, and silence. And the relief as Joseph's voice pours forth, his eyes pour forth tears, his voice wails of joy that flow with a heart that's flooded with forgiveness and love. Verse 3, Joseph's so emotionally wrecked at this stage that the Hebrew sounds as if his speech is just all running together. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my, is my father still alive? Notice this. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Like Luke was dismayed when he found out that Darth Vader was actually his father, so too these brothers are dismayed at Joseph's big reveal. Our brother's alive? What? There's no way. This is impossible. They're so startled by this bombshell, they can't even speak. What? You are her brother. But it's not just that they are shocked by the news. Really, they're terrified. The word there for dismayed, it carries the sense to be terrified, horrified, to be out of one's senses. As Matthew writes, quote, Terrified here indicates the panic that seizes a person when surprised by obvious doom. Understand, their worst nightmare has just become a reality. The man they had hated and killed, or thought they had killed, thought they had, uh, that uh, they thought they had sold away, was not dead, but alive. And he's not just alive, but he's the ruler. He's the ruler over Egypt. He is the second most powerful man in the world. Surely Joseph would want eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Surely Joseph would want to torture them, hurt them, kill them, destroy them. And so they are dismayed. But that's what they thought. Joseph, however, reveals this starting revelation that he will not harm them, but in fact, he has forgiven them. He has forgiven them, and he wants to be reconciled to them. Why? Because Joseph has a theological anchor of his soul. 
He has a bulwark, never failing, a ballast in the storm, a, a buoy in the trial, a rock that will never move, a fortress that will never shake, a refuge that will never shake, uh, that will never crumble. Joseph has a sovereign God that rules and reigns over all. As Ross remarks, quote, Joseph can forgive, not just because he has seen that his brothers had changed, but even more importantly, because he had a right understanding of the eternal plan of God. So that brings us to our second startling revelation, his sovereign God, verses 4 through 8. His sovereign God. Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer. Remember, only Judah had approached the throne earlier in chapter 44. The other brothers had still remained at a distance. And so to confirm his identity and to show these brothers that he really means no harm to them, he, he beckons them, hey, come closer to me. See that it is I. See that it is Joseph, verse 4. I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. This repeated revelation, it serves two purposes. On the one hand, to confirm this wasn't a hoax, right? Only Joseph, only a true brother would have known this crucial detail. Nobody else would have known that this was the brother they had sold into slavery. So this confirmed this was, in fact, Joseph. He's not playing any games on them. But on the other hand, notice the emphasis here. He says, whom you sold into Egypt. Joseph highlights their personal guilt. He highlights the responsibility of these men for their sinful actions. Right? Understand, God's sovereignty by no means excuses men or women, from personal responsibility. You guys sold me into slavery in Egypt. You guys committed sin. You guys are guilty for your crime. Nevertheless, here is the balm for your souls. Verse 5, now do not be grieved. Do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. Yes, you did this. Yes, you're responsible agents for your decisions. But brothers, don't grieve. Don't be angry with yourselves over this. Don't start kicking yourselves and saying, how could I do this? Don't start blaming others. How could they do this? No, you need to understand this all-important truth, Joseph says. God is sovereign over all. Joseph's forgiveness and his reconciliation begins here. That God is sovereign, so too it is with us. Now, when I say that God is sovereign over all, it, it just means that he's the king, right? He's the, he's the Lord of lords, the king of kings. He is the one on his throne who has decreed all things. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Psalm 103, verse 19. Yahweh is on his throne. He's established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. The end from the beginning, God has declared it. And not only has he declared it, he's the one bringing it about. He is the one accomplishing his purpose. Matthew chapter 10, there's not a bird that drops to the ground apart from our Lord's providential care. There's not a hair upon your head that he does not know about. God reigns over all. God rules over all. God directs all. And it's so sad, is it not, when professing Christians deny the sovereignty of God. There's no way God can be sovereign. I mean, look at these global disasters that we have. Look at the rampant sin that is in our world. Now, God's not in control. But steadfast, listen to me. To deny the sovereignty of God is not only to deny the short teaching of Scripture or to deny the glory of God. To deny the sovereignty of God is like losing the life preserver in the middle of the sea. It's to, to lose the parachute in the middle of a plane crash. 
The, the only thing holding your head above the water during the times of your affliction is this. God is good, and God is on his throne, and he is in control of all. He is the one working in your difficulty to bring about his eternal glory and your eternal good. This is the foundation upon which our feet stand. God is sovereign. In fact, one of the scariest things to think about in life in this world is, is a God that's not sovereign. For if, if God's not in control, then, then who is? David said this in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 14, I am in great distress. Let me not fall into the hand, or excuse me, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man, right? If a good, perfect, gracious, merciful God is not ruling over all, then who is? So when times of distress come, guess what? I want to be found safe in the hands of a sovereignly good and gracious God. His mercies are great. And so that's the exact mentality Joseph has here in these verses. He understands this. He embraces this. That while these men had sinned against him, there was a God in the heavens who intended it for not only his good, but for the good of others. He says, verse 5, for God sent me before you. The word sent there means to, to dispatch one on a mission, to commission one. Uh, it was used of Moses. God sent Moses to redeem Israel out of Egypt, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verse 11. Or when God sent Jeremiah to prophesy in the court of the temple, Jeremiah 19, 14, in a similar way, Joseph recognizes that in the internal counsel of the infinitely wise God, his brother's sinful actions were just simply the means by which God would send Joseph into Egypt and accomplish God's mission. Well, what was that mission? It's fourfold. First, to preserve life, to preserve Life, Verse 5, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. You see, why Joseph's brothers had sought to destroy life, God purposed their actions to preserve life. Joseph was sent ahead to preserve the, the countless lives of those who for many more years would not have any access to food. So God had sent him to preserve life. God also sent him to preserve a remnant. Look at verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth. While preserving the, the lives of numerous, numerous people from certain starvation and death was indeed important, God actually has a bigger plan, Joseph reveals here. An even greater, more glorious plan for sending Joseph ahead, and that was to preserve this remnant. While the brothers had sought to destroy a covenant heir, God purposed their actions to preserve or establish his chosen remnant. And just follow the logic here, right? If there's no food for Jacob and his sons, then we don't have Jacob and his sons. If we don't have Jacob and his sons, we don't have a royal line. We don't have a seed. We don't have a covenant. We don't have a God who keeps his word or keeps his promises. We don't have a future Messiah. We don't have a Savior. We don't have eternal redemption. This is God in his infinite counsel, in his infinite wisdom, sovereignly, preserving the integrity of his nature, his character, his word, his promises, his remnant. Indeed, as Paul says, the, the riches of God's wisdom and knowledge here, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways to send Joseph ahead. God ordains an evil act so as to orchestrate his people's greatest good. And so as we come to the New Testament, it doesn't surprise us centuries, year, years later, centuries later that, that on the cross, God would also ordain 
the wicked acts of malicious men to orchestrate his people's greatest good. For it was there that the Son of God was sent on ahead so as to preserve and to give life to all those whom he wills. This is how God works. He preserved a remnant in Joseph's day and he has saved a remnant in Jesus' day, in our day today. He also sent Joseph ahead to, pre, uh, to provide a great deliverance, to provide a great deliverance, verse 7, and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. From the very get-go, we see that the Lord was with Joseph, right? From the pit to the dungeon to the palace, God was with him all the way. He had planned every step for Joseph. Why? In order that God, through him, might secure a great deliverance for his people in giving food. We all see, see lastly, the fourth purpose here is to provide leadership in Egypt. To provide leadership in Egypt. Verse 8, once more we see that Joseph reiterates his point. He does so with force. He says, now therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And God has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Right? You sent me here out of jealousy to become a slave and die, but God is the one who sent me here so that I could become a ruler, an advisor, a counselor to Pharaoh and thus accomplish God's providential plan. And does this not just blow your mind? I mean, does it not encourage your heart that this is the God that we know and serve? But don't miss the point from all this. What was Joseph's reason for bringing these, bringing these purposes up? It was in verse 5, the, the comfort his brothers so that this would be the starting point for their forgiveness and their reconciliation. Right? When, when we realize that God is sovereign over our circumstances and we embrace that, then when the company's director, their board of directors, fire you, you don't have to grow embittered and resentful about it. When Sally slanders you behind your back, you don't have to hold it against her. You don't have to never speak to her again. I mean, sure, yeah, it's going to hurt. Sure, you're going you're gonna to grieve. Uh, sure, where, where sin is involved, there needs to be confession and repentance before transactional forgiveness can be given. But the truth is, is that you can have hope in the midst of those trials. You can find peace. You can know rest because God is on his throne. You can have an attitude of forgiveness as Jesus called for and a heart free from the oppressive weariness of, of holding a grudge because I know that, that God is meaning this trial ultimately for my good. So while I don't know exactly what that good ultimately will be, I can move forward with a heart free from anger, free from bitterness, because God is working it for his good. And as we see here, the flip side is also true, right? Joseph, remarkably, is so rooted in the sovereignty of God, he's actually the one counseling his brothers here. I just love that. Brothers, you need to look to the sovereign one too. Don't allow your hearts to grow gloomy as you brood over your own sinful actions and your past failures. Right? You need to take heart. God is on his throne. So then we see both sides of the coin. God's sovereignty is the fountainhead from which flows forgiveness and reconciliation. That brings us to a third revelation, his impassioned plea. His impassioned plea, verse 9. He says, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. You shall, have, you shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now, you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. 
Joseph's passion, his urgency for his father's well-being, is, it's evident from the bookends in verse 9 and verse 13. In verse 9, he says, he says, hurry, hurry, go up to my father. And then he says, come, come down to me. Do not delay. Verse 13, he says, you must tell my father. You must hurry. You must bring my father down here. The question is why? Why is Joseph so impassioned here? What's the rush? The answer is twofold. Right? Joseph realizes his mission, his purpose to save and to establish and preserve a remnant. And so in verse 11, Joseph reveals that if his father waits around, if his father waits any longer, he's going to become impoverished. And he's going to risk losing out on the promised blessing. Therefore, Joseph says, come down now to the land of Goshen. and You will be provided for. God has sovereignly provided for you, Jacob. Come down. But secondly, I think Paul Twist hits the nail on the head here. He says, for full and final reconciliation to occur, Jacob must come down to Egypt. He states this, quote, The need to bring the father quickly is because Jacob stands as the last piece needed for full and final reconciliation, end quote. So we see here, Jake, uh, Joseph's desire in all of this is to be reconciled, to be reconciled to his brothers, and to be reconciled to his father. And so he gives this startling revelation of, of his identity, which must be revealed, of his brothers coming to understand and embrace the sovereignty of God, and for all parties to be involved. Well, that brings us to the second stage here on this road, and that's to a stirring reconciliation, verses 14 through 15. So Joseph has given the theological basis and now it's time to come together with his brothers. This is one of the most heart-stirring scenes in the Bible as Joseph is reconciled to his brothers. Look at verse 14. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And afterward, his brothers talked with him. 22 years of frustration, anger, pain, jealousy, bitterness, resentment, animosity, it's all gone. It's all gone. And in its place, joy, love, forgiveness, peace, affection, compassion, reconciliation, Notice who this is for. It's for all his brothers. It's not just innocent Benjamin who had done no harm to Joseph, but Joseph kisses and weeps on all his brothers. Every single one of them he has forgiven. And I love this. Don't miss what he says at the end of verse 15. He says, and afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Isn't that significant? You remember what, what it says back in chapter 37, verse 4? And in chapter 37, verse 4, says his brothers saw that Jacob loved Joseph more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and they could not speak to him on friendly terms. So what we see here is the breach has been closed. The wall of animosity has been torn down. There is a beautiful and glorious reconciliation between this family. And how does it happen? By the forgiveness that flows from a heart rooted in the sovereignty of God. And so now the only thing that is needed is to bring in the last piece of the puzzle. They need to go down to Egypt and bring Jacob back. The father who had been lied to, the father who had been hurt, the father who said that his Soul was going to go down to Sheol in mourning because of his lost son. So that brings us then to the third stage of this reconciliation. And that's a stunning revitalization. A stunning revitalization, verses 16 through 28. This revitalization begins with the gracious gifts. The gracious gifts in verses 16 through 23. Now you're asking why? Why, why do we have this list of gifts given well, the answer is going to become clear at the end of the chapter where we're going to see that these gifts serve as a sign. They serve as a sign to validate the brother's message, and they're also used for motivation to get Jacob uprooted out of where he is at and to come down 
to Egypt. First, we see the gifts that are from Pharaoh. The gifts from Pharaoh, verse 16. Now, when the news was heard in Pharaoh's house that Joseph's brothers had come, it pleased Pharaoh and his servants, right? News had traveled fast around the royal courts. What is is all this wailing and crying going on? Well, it's Joseph's brothers had returned. And I always love this. Notice God's sovereign hand as it tells us that Pharaoh's heart was pleased and all of his servants were pleased at this good news. God works in Pharaoh's heart to accept this wonderful news. Verse 17, and so what does Pharaoh do? Well, then Pharaoh says to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beasts and go to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me. And I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you will eat the fat of the land now you are ordered, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Do not concern yourselves with goods for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. Pharaoh's offer here outpaces that of Joseph's. Pharaoh goes so far as to offer Jacob the best of the land. And we see that Jacob will eat the fat of the land. Why? Because the best of not just Goshen, but all the land of Egypt is Jacob's. And just think, what a grace of God to these brothers and to this family. Do we deserve it? No. But God is gracious. God is good. God is so kind and rich and merciful to these brothers. But then we go on to Joseph. We see the gifts that are from Joseph in verse 21 through 23. Then the sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each of them he gave changes of garments, but to, uh, but to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. Significant. It's significant that Joseph gave to each brother a change of garments. Why? Why, why do you think that might be? Well, because we're intentionally reminded here of the past. What was the kind of the, the symbol of the controversy back in chapter 37? It was a what? It was a cloak. It was a garment of many colors. And so we are intentionally reminded here that while earlier Joseph's garment had served as a symbol of his brother's jealousy, uh, right, their, their father's favoritism that they would not let go. No longer would they bear it under their watch. They tear Joseph's garment and they throw him into a pit. So what do we see here? A stunning act of grace as Joseph offers to clothe these same brothers with new garments. A symbol no longer of jealousy, but of God's grace and work in Joseph and the family's life. Right? This is true reconciliation. This is true forgiveness. And I love how the brothers respond here, right? Joseph shows favoritism to Benjamin. He gives him 300 pieces of silver. He gives him five changes of garments. Notice how the brothers respond. Oh wait, yeah, they don't. They're, they're not upset now that there's favoritism being shown in the family. So verse 23, to his father, he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with the best things of Egypt and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain and bread and sustenance for his father on the journey. Otherwise, in other words, a, a foretaste of the promises that are going to come in Egypt. So we move then from the gracious gifts to the unbelievable news. The unbelievable news in verses 24 through 26. So Joseph sent his brothers away. And as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the journey. I'm like, hmm, what's going on there? What's, okay, the word for quarrel means to quake or shake in anger, fear, or dread. And there's some debate exactly what Joseph means here. I think the, the historical interpretation is the best in which Joseph is warning his brothers about arguing among themselves as they return to give the news to their father. Joseph's brothers were kind of in a pickle here, right? Hey, Dad, you, you, remember, you remember Joseph? And, you know, we told you that he, he got eaten by a wild animal. Well, it's not exactly how it happened. 
In fact, he's still alive, and he's the ruler over the kingdom. We've actually been covering up everything we've done for the last 20 years. I mean, these guys are in a pickle. And so it would seem then that to prevent any blame shifting, any finger pointing, any cowardice, Joseph calls on his brothers. He says, hey, do not quarrel among yourselves. Do not quake. Do not be frightened. Go down and tell my father the message that I have given you. Verse 25, then they went up from Egypt. It would seem that they did that. There was no quarreling. They're showing that their hearts have been transformed. They came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. Verse 26, they said to him, or excuse me, they told him saying, Joseph is alive. Shocker. But wait, it gets better. Dad, indeed, he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. How does Jacob respond? He was stunned. Literally, his heart grew numb. His throat was paralyzed, just like the brothers couldn't get anything out. He couldn't believe this, says there at the end of the verse, for he did not believe them. All right, much like the disciples, when Jesus was raised from the grave, they would not believe the woman's report that Jesus was alive. So too, Jacob cannot believe what these brothers, these sons of his, had just proclaimed. And I mean, who can blame him, right? His son, who he thought was dead for 20 plus years, is now alive. And now he's not just alive, but the second most powerful man in the world. This is unbelievable. But we see that the brothers will not give up. And so we come to the revitalized father, verses 27 through 28. When they told him all the words of Joseph that he had spoken to, him, uh, spoken to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. Upon hearing Joseph's message that God had sovereignly been at work in Joseph's life, upon seeing the sovereign goodness of God through these gracious gifts, Joseph, uh, excuse me, Jacob is revived. He is revitalized. Uh, Jacob, as it were, was raised back to life after 22 years of mourning, grieving, and sorrow. Remember his words back in 37, chapter 37, verse 35. He said then that all his sons and all his daughters, they tried to, to comfort Jacob, but he refused to be comforted. He said, surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So his father wept for him. Right, the man who promised to go down to his grave, depressed, can now rise in gladness. Verse 28, then Israel said, it is enough. My son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The name Israel is a crucial detail here. As Hamilton argues, Israel was Jacob's new name. It signifies here that it's fitting that the, that the man who had a new name now has a new destiny. He has a new future, a new hope, has a new expectation. His son is alive. What a sweet chapter. What a powerful chapter. Here is a man who traveled the road to reconciliation in his own life. If you're caught in a downward spiral of bitterness and unforgiveness, how can you begin traveling to the sweet and freeing realm of reconciliation today? Now, how can we apply what we've learned here? Well, the, the road to reconciliation, it begins with the gospel. It begins with the gospel. Matthew chapter 18. You can turn there if you want to. There our Lord tells Peter, or excuse me, there Peter tells our Lord, how many times and shall I, my, uh, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times, Jesus says, no. I say up to you seven times, but up to 70 times, seven times. And he gives this parable in which there's a, a man in a kingdom in which he, he pleads that his debt would be erased before the king. It was 10,000 talents, which would equate to billions of dollars. I mean, unheard, unprecedented amount. There's no way this guy can pay this debt. This king forgives him. He erases it. And then Jesus brings this, out this powerful illustration of now this slave going out and not forgiving for what amounts to 
as, yeah, a significant amount, but honestly, chump change compared to what he was owed the king. And so what does Jesus say in verse uh, 32? Then summoning his Lord, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers till he should repay all that was owed him. Verse 35, here's the point. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What's the point? The point is, is the gospel, the love, the forgiveness that God has given and has showed his people should in turn catalyze us to forgiveness. It starts here. When I recognize and I realize the forgiveness that has shown, been shown to me in the blood and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If I want to begin traveling down the road to reconciliation, I have to start with Christ. He has loved me. He has given his life for me. He has reconciled me to himself. Therefore, I am to go forward and forgive those who have sinned against me. Understand, if you're not in Christ today, you can't practice what are taught here in the scriptures because your heart is shackled in sin. You, you, you will never come to a place of full forgiveness, of biblical reconciliation, until your heart has been made alive by the gospel of grace. Jesus' forgiveness helps you begin that road, that path towards forgiveness, and reconciliation. But secondly, it's God's sovereignty, as we learned here in the Joseph narrative, right? Until you come to a point in which you recognize, you understand, you submit and embrace God's sovereignty, you're never going to be able to get over what has been committed against you. Until Mike comes and realizes that God is the one sovereignly over those board of directors, he's never going to be able to come to a place where he can forgive those guys. He has to understand God is working this trial out for God's glory and for his good. And when he does, he can take the next step down the path and the road to reconciliation. So it has to start with the gospel. It has to start with the love of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. It has to start with understanding and embracing God's sovereignty. And third, third is glorify God. And what I mean by that is that you must settle in your heart that you will glorify God. That's what Joseph did. That no matter what, I will make it my ambition to please God. 2 Corinthians 5, 8 through 9. I don't care how my brother has sinned against me. I don't care what they have done against me. I will not choose to react. I will not choose to respond in like. No, I will choose to glorify God in this situation, in this conflict, in this strife, in this trial. I will choose. I will stand firm because I know the one who has loved me. I know the one who is in control of all things. Therefore, I will choose to glorify him. That's where my heart is settled. And once you come to that place, you can take the next step to reconciliation. Because I know to glorify God does not mean to walk in bitterness and unforgiveness and hate and animosity. I will glorify God. Fourth, you got to get the log out of your own eye. Get the log out of your own eye. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says that both sides, if you want reconciliation to occur, you must come together and you must confess your sins. You must repent and turn from your sins. You must confess your sins to God. You must confess your sins to one another. Just like we saw here in this passage, right? Genesis chapter 44, Judah came. He confessed their sins. He, he showed and demonstrated true repentance. And what did that do? It lifted the floodgates open. Joseph could not control himself. He forgave. They were reconciled. So too it is with us. We must get the log of our own eye. We must go in that situation and confess our own sins and repent. And first, uh, excuse me, fifth, as you do that, you grant transactional forgiveness. What do I mean by that? Well, there's attitudinal forgiveness in which you have a willingness to forgive. I understand the first four things. I understand God's gospel, uh, the gospel. I know God's sovereignty. I have chosen to glorify God. I have confessed my sin to the Lord. But the other person, they're not willing to confess. They're not willing to be reconciled. So what must I do? I must say, Lord, 
in my heart, in my spirit, I have chosen to forgive them. That's attitudinal forgiveness. What is transactional forgiveness? Transactional, transactional forgiveness is now when both parties have come together, both have recognized their sin, they have confessed their sin, they have turned from their sin, and they say, as I have to do often with my wife, Sarah, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against you. I've spoken to you harshly. I've had anger in my heart. I have not loved you as Christ has loved the church. Will you forgive me? Transactional forgiveness occurs when Sarah says, Wes, I forgive you. And when that happens, there is reconciliation. That is transactional forgiveness. It must be granted. Forgiveness is not after that, then bringing it up to yourself. It's not bringing it up to other people. It's not holding it against one another. But it says, it says in um, Malachi, you have tossed our sins, excuse me, in Micah, you have tossed our sins into the depths of the sea. That's what forgiveness is. I'm not bringing it up anymore. It's gone. We are forgiven. We are reconciled. That's how we travel the road to reconciliation. The gospel, God's sovereignty, glorify God, get the log out of my own eye, and then I grant transactional forgiveness as both parties come together. And what's the sweet, the sweet fruit of that? Well, we see it in Jacob's life. It is restoration, revival, revitalization. So I would urge you, if you have somebody that you need to forgive or somebody you have not been reconciled today begin that road towards reconciliation do not continue to to hold anger and bitterness and animosity towards them begin that path today by god's grace let's pray father thank you for this message what i pray it's encouraging to to everyone here lord this chapter has been so encouraging to my own heart this week God, help us to go forward and not just say, oh, wow, that was, that was a really good thing, but not do anything about it. We don't want to be hearers of the word only. We want to be doers, Lord. We truly want you to conform us to Christ. We truly want you to make us more like the Savior who, who forgave us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. He gave his life for us that we might be forgiven. Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness we have in Christ. Let us go forward in the power of the gospel. Lord, help us to come to an understanding today uh, for many of us, probably just a, a deeper understanding today, a more resolute understanding today of the sovereignty of God in our lives. And may that propel us forward to the road of reconciliation. For anyone here that has somebody, a, a relationship in their life in which there is conflict there, God, maybe that person doesn't want anything to, to do with them. I pray that they would just say, Lord, I will glorify you. I will treat that person as you call me to treat them. Lord, I will forgive them right now in my heart. I will no longer hold on to this anger and this bitterness and this resentment. Lord, I give it to you. I pray they would do that today. And Lord, I pray that there be opportunities when which two parties could actually come together and be reconciled. That, Lord, you would even provide that opportunity today by your sovereign hand. Let there be confession. Let there be repentance. And, Lord, let there be forgiveness. And, Lord, may there be hearts restored, revitalized, renewed today for your glory and your praise. Amen.